So we have a few questions. It may open up areas interesting for you to reflect on. There's really no answers to questions. Because, <laughs> you know, where they're coming from, you know, that's what you'd have to look into, where the questions arise from and, uh, and what needs to be resolved. So you can't, but they can give you some suggestions of things to to check in with yourself, look at, and and uh, uh, practice with. I think you have to recognize there's a lot of um, language we use in Buddhism, like enlightenment, non-attachment, that we kind of throw these words around, terms around, not necessarily really knowing exactly what they mean. <laughs> Oh, attachment's bad, enlightenment's good. I want that, I don't want that. You know? <laughs> and so these are, you've got to go explore what these, some of these terms are actually referring to. Anyway, let's have a go. Thank you anyway for bringing these up for exploration. There you go. If you're on this topic, can non monastics in the West? reach enlightenment well clearly this must have been written by someone who's not a monastic otherwise it would have been kind of monastics in the west reach enlightenment the <laughs> 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 very word like enlightenment itself is it can be looked at in various in a number of ways you could say any moment when the mind, because it's not really people that get enlightened, it's minds that get enlightened. <laughs> uh, so enlightenment can be can looked at in various ways. Whenever there's a sense in which the this this flow of thoughts and emotions and impressions and reactions and so forth, uh, so that we sort of see through that and it breaks and it pauses in some openness. And that we could say is a kind of enlightening moment. You may be accompanied by a realization of how that happened, which is much better because then we've got a recognition of what well, I did there, I was still doing that, and therefore that stopped it. That's what rose. But enlightenment is, is more like a, seeing clearly where things stop, where all compulsions stop, where habits stop, and where suffering stops, and uh, where constructed constructions don't need to be made where constructions don't need to be made, where we don't need to think, where we don't need to name it, but the mind is open and free from designations. So any moment this occurs, it can be just moments, so you could say that's an enlightening moment. Because then you, you do, oh, oh, not just all this stuff that's banging through my head, you know, it's something else, which is great. And uh, so that's, that's excellent because then you get some sense of, of, of you, you can penetrate this this web of, uh, of mind stuff. But that's only like poking a hole in it. <laughs> Dismantle the whole web is, is a big job. Uh, big job. Because it means uh, you know you've had enough penetrations and enough realizations of the fundamental ways in which um, all this stuff happens through attachment, through clinging, through craving, through not seeing, that you've begun that you've begun to assemble the skills and the tools that will enable you to be clearer, to see into things, and release the craving and the clinging. Uh, and you've assembled that, and you've actually put it to work on your own inheritance, you might say, your own habits. This is quite a big job. Um, so where do all those qualities get cultivated and uh, in this body and mind? And you say, well, it's not so much you know, as many and as supportive as we can get 
what you're looking for. And the Buddha recognized, well, you know, it's better to be out of the mainstream of society than in it. It's more advantageous because then you're not constantly having to, to be met by all kinds of attitudes that are about competition and, and seduction and abusiveness and immorality. You don't have to meet this stuff. You don't have to get too, too, be, too uh, embedded in it. So that definitely helps. And so we would say it's not really. Let's say that the lay field or the mainstream field is not the best field for, for practice for for enlightenment. It's not the easy one. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's impossible. And the monastic field is better. But there are many, many pitfalls in that because, of course, uh, once you get into any kind of anything institutionalized and, and, it's, and it's adopted by the mainstream, then you get the same kind of influences. You get uh, monasteries being competitive or monks being uh, aggressive or egotistical and so forth. So it's, it's a matter of purity of heart. How you develop it to get the both the you know, the energy and the skills to bear upon the, uh, the flow of mind and impulses and emotions and impressions and perceptions that so daze us and dazzle us. But there are an immense amount of um, teachings, and the Buddha made a big effort to to teach people living in household life. And many of them, well, we look in the discourses, many of them uh, attained uh, very high degrees of realization, where they dropped huge amounts of stuff. Um, so there are, there are these four major stages of we call the awakening process, the stream mantra, has managed to break through enough to really be fully committed and fully get a feeling for what <coughs> the path of Nibbana is about. And then the once, the, uh, once return and non-return in the Arahant. And so many of these lay people attain you know, considerable degrees of clearing, clearing old stuff. And he wouldn't have taught them if he didn't think it was worthwhile. But there are very few, percentage-wise, very few monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen who actually complete the course in this lifetime. It's a long, it's the long, uh, um, it's a pretty long view. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like, well, let's do it this week. You know, <laughs> you got. It's a long view to clear this, clear this, clear this, clear this, clear, clear, clear this, clear this, clear this, clear this. And in that, uh, uh, very often the, the one of the main axes of practice is what they call the parami or the paramita, which is you know establishing core training principles uh, to keep pressing against the stream of the world. And these are uh, generosity, sharing, being grand-hearted in uh, one sense of material resources, also generous in terms of advice and sharing. This is considered a massive push against the worldly stream of grabbing for yourself. Um, uh, morality, you know, so pushes against the tendency to manipulate, deceive, abuse, uh, be underhanded, uh, which are all standard experiences unfortunately in the mainstream uh, renunciation less common but definitely something that's an urgent requirement against consumerism which is a massive plague that's eating up the earth so renunciation isn't about hair shirts it's about just 
pushing against the consumer bug versus this deadly stuff you can see the amount of material resources that are used up by this particular plague so the more we can push against that the more we keep our own hearts free because we begin to see we don't really need that much material stuff what we really need is spiritual stuff that's what keeps us alive then we have um, discernment clarity being able to distinguish skillful from unskillful states and be clear about it make a point of constantly referring to your own mind states and which are worth sustaining and which are worth not sustaining which you should definitely resist and which you wish to pick up and linger on that's an important cultivation you don't have to be a monk to do that patience ability to just bear with not being uh, because this gives the mind strength to resist the pressure of time impatience got to get got to have it really gives the mind strength patience with yourself patience with physical discomfort patience with unpleasant input you know uh, to not be swayed knocked around by this is a powerful practice truthfulness to both see the truth and know the truth and this this is a powerful practice because we don't always see the truth we see things through blurred eyes and really to see it as it is not just through our biases and to live the truth and to speak the truth but better to you know to live the truth first of all before you start speaking it because <laughs> otherwise you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> you just got some ideas you know <laughs> what else do we have loving kindness very important non-aversion keep the heart from sourness and bitterness and rancor and uh, fault finding and resolution absolutely because unless you make resolution resolve none of these other ones stand up for very long so resolution is a kind of core principle of all the parami otherwise you know they just blow away and you, resolution means you can do it when the going's tough you, you develop parami not when it's really sweet but when it's tough that's when you really develop it because that's when you make that firm resolve no matter what i'm not going to get into that you know? and so resolution just takes everything 10 times stronger and deeper you don't need to be a monk to do that equanimity <laughs> this is tough you know to be able to not lose heart in all the up in the, in the downs and not to over uh, get overlated in the ups either in oneself to get inflated by the ups and depressed by the downs yeah or to get idealistic when things are getting good and depressed when things are going bad just to stay uh-huh open sensitive this is conditions that are changing conditions are changing uh-huh what are you doing now you're getting you know what's happening your mind's steady and still you know, conditions are changing that's an important parami so these are things that you, you should really the idea about this is you don't just do these on the cushion and the meditation hall that's that's the point you see if we think the enlightenment is just going to happen sitting in a meditation hall well it's, it's going to be a funny meditation hall living sleeping <laughs> eating everything's going to go on in there you've got to get outside the door sooner or later and if if you only can only do it in this posture it all falls apart outside the door so you've got to really look at things the big picture the long view and really make make your life something you start to shape up in terms of core references and these are definitely things that you know you can make an effort with and that's all we need to know really eventually the rest of it's just more practice is necessary <laughs> that's the story So, spiritual friends, we support each other on the path. I see a lot of attachment in the way I relate to them. 
How do I keep the sweetheart connection and cultivate non-attachment? One of the Buddhist views on marriage, does it not go against non-attachment? Well, I think again we're maybe mixing up a few terms. There's one term, viveka, means a certain disengagement, and this is called disengagement from unskillful states. Means you unhook, you don't. Whereas normally a mind state arises, we just get onto it, and either react to it, or follow it, or argue about it. And then with disengagement, you unhook from what's that about? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you don't follow it, you just step back to check it out. So that's the first kind, that's the first way this word non-attachments are used. It refers to mind states. Yeah. Um, and another way the term that's used is uh, is called upadana, which means clinging, which is another way of expressing non-attachment. This really refers to um, you know, getting consolidating where the mind, instead of uh, uh, seeing or experiencing phenomena as changeable, tries to make them more solid than they are. Now, for example, a base of clinging is sense sense objects. And sense objects, you know, we know when we come into contact with them, they provide degrees of pleasurable or unpleasurable feeling. Uh, and those feelings come and go and change. Now, if we as clinging, there's a sense in which we, we look at a sense object and imagine this has definitely got pleasure locked up in it permanently. <laughs> we don't think that, but that's the kind of instinct. So then there's a grabbing to that and there's a leaning upon that for security and for happiness. And it can't do it. If clinging worked, go ahead and cling. But it doesn't because, what, you know, we, we, we cling to uh, these sense objects which don't actually contain permanent security or happiness. We also cling to views and opinions about things. This is right, that's not right. This is the right idea, that's the wrong idea. This, you know, Buddhists are this, Theravada is this, Mahayana is this, Tibetans are this, Taoism is this, Christians are better than this, Muslims are better than that, you know. These kinds of views and opinions. And then what happens is then we typify something, like Buddhists or monks or something, that's definitely a thing, and I've got an opinion about that, and I stick with it. And again, things are not allowed to change and be fluid. Why is that clinging? Because it's a search for security. Once I know where that is, I know where I am, the clinging creates me, because I know where I am in relationship to that. Another kind of clinging is to uh, the very notion of self, which is the most Stable, uh, constant source of clinging that is thoughts and emotions and behaviours not just individually but ch- trains of thought and repeated habits uh, get clung to they attract clinging this mechanism which solidifies them into a person and this is the deepest level and it's the most powerful and the most important one to be able to see through uh, and otherwise uh, this is, is always the antithesis of liberation, is this clinging. Yeah. Now how you do that is you work on, on your mind and you work on how you relate to uh, sense objects, views and opinions, um, uh, emotions and feelings, uh, uh, and particularly the, these, these core references, security, uh, co- security, happiness, uh, and a sense of self. So these, these, are, these underlie it all. Uh, so naturally that can occur in any relationship. And also you can do it without a relationship. <laughs> so how you go about it. We can also recognize with, with, some, with some humility that uh, relationships are not just about clinging. They should also be important teachers. So in some ways, you could say, is, the, is commitment clinging? 
Committed to relationship with the person, is that clinging? Or is that a resolution to work out stuff, to let somebody else be a mirror and tell you where it's at, because you're too thick to see it yourself? (laughs) (laughs) That could be useful, couldn't it? Or you're too obstinate, you know. So then, relationship, if it's held as a mirror, could be quite a helpful thing to point out stuff that you don't see. You can't see the back of your head. Right? No, nobody can. And so that's what spiritual kalyanamita, spiritual friendship, is for. It's for people you can trust and rely upon. You know, he means well. He's not trying to be nasty to me. Be out of compassion. He's telling me, you know, where I'm falling short, and I should be grateful for that. Now, whether I'm married to him or not, that's another thing. You know, now, if I'm just cling to somebody to constantly fulfil my fantasies, well, that's 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 disastrous. But I don't think you fulfil fantasies in marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for a day you might, but after that. But, uh, you know, I think, look at it another way, you could say, well, you know, I think any marriage is certainly means you, you certainly got to, if I was married to someone, I, I'd have to feel responsible for them. You know, it'd be my duty to be responsible for, for that person. And therefore, you know, I, I'd certainly be a certain sense of worry and concern and trying to make it work for them. So I think there's a certain emotional pull that uh, has to be uh, really worked with and works against. But... You know, in any relationships, so even monk to his teacher or monk to his monastery or to other people, these are all places where you know it's supportive, but then at a certain point we can get stuck in it and then we've got to keep recognizing that. And, you know, wait a minute. So it's, but then without it, you know, it's very difficult without somebody, you know, giving you some feedback, it's really difficult. The Buddha said it's pretty essential to have somebody give you feedback, somebody you trust. Yeah. So hopefully you trust the person you marry. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trustworthy. Uh, somebody, so somebody give you some feedback is, is a tremendous asset because we don't see a blind spot. Period. My jitter is called to dedicate the rest of my life to protect our Mother Earth from climate change. Teach secular mindfulness in nature, always encourage heart opening to the environment and hopes that people will love nature and therefore protect it. It seems changing a few hearts isn't enough, given the dire situation and scale of devastation. Any suggestions on making a bigger difference? Well, I must admit, so I'm a bit stumped on this one myself, really. Um, uh, I suppose, you know, we look at it incrementally, changing a few hearts, uh, is better than changing none. And uh, really the theme has to be that we can't do this individually. It can only work if you get large groups of people or or networks operating together you know, to, to, to exert enough to make a big enough move, express a big voice loud enough, and also to act in ways that, that push against uh, the uh, consumerism and corruption and uh, uh, devastation that occurs. And so that, that really has to be you know, a big thing to, to encourage. And that's practice in its own right, because we have to also encourage not just frustration, anger and despair, but, but kindness, compassion, generosity and, and qualities that, that express the beauty of human nature. Human nature becomes beautiful, then it's quite uh, something that just doesn't you want to look after things.
But it's my personal opinion, for its worth, is that these uh, changes would occur primarily at the grassroots level, uh, and and if the grassroots get strong enough, eventually push the upper levels to do something about it, because the, by and large the upper levels of society are controlled by uh, power, uh, military might, and money. These things do not let go easy, and it's controlled by domination, exploitation, ethic. And so the upper echelons are controlled by, by and large, domination, exploitation is the is the ethic, and it goes in terms of dominating, exploiting nature, dominating, exploiting other people, other nations dominating, exploiting the people they're supposed to be serving, you know, so, and this, this paradigm has to change. Any way you can change any of that, crack holes in it, break holes in it, uh, and provide alternatives, must be a uh, uh, benefit. So why do the qualities that free us from the suffering of the ultimately unsatisfactory world of our senses also care about their world? For example, compassion, non-violence and appreciative joy, etc. Because these, these qualities you've mentioned, um, Passion, non-violence, mutual sympathetic joy, appreciation, and there are many of them. They, they free us from the contaminations of uh, greed, of hatred, delusion. And those are the contaminations that make the world so miserable. <laughs> you know? So the world of the senses is unsatisfactory as such. Um, in other words, it doesn't, doesn't satisfy us, but um, one can abide within it in a way, feeling comfortable because you have enough spiritual qualities to not get impacted by it. So these, and how, how do you practice these these qualities? You practice them towards the world of the senses, uh, the world of the mind. You practice them to any any phenomenon that arises. Whether it's sensory, uh, immaterial, emotional, celestial, you just keep those things going, uh, and naturally, you know, the the payoff uh, is experienced in your own heart. But of course, there are good effects in the world around you, so everything wins with that. And the world that Buddha talks about is not just the world of the senses; it's primarily the world, the constructed world of psychologies and uh, um, that's that's the world he says you, you free yourself from that uh, from uh, using the word psychologies very broadly very loosely speaking from attitudes from incorrect impulses from misperceptions from deluded distorted ways of thinking that's what you work on. The senses are just the senses. They're just, they don't, they're not great, but they're what they are. They're not, you know. The problem is the distortions and the biases and the attitudes and the greed and the hatred that that the mind concocts in relationship to those. Now, if those relationships are changed, the sensory world is just, it's this, you know. It's, it's not great, but it's okay. And you're not, because you're not bonding to it, you kind of live within it, but your heart is not in these distorted relationships to it. How do you cultivate, how do you clear the mind from distorted relationships? Through qualities such as compassion and, and so forth, but also qualities such as patience, truthfulness, renunciation, morality, mindfulness, you name it. There's a vast list of qualities and tools that you bring to bear upon the distorted uh, 
blind, compulsive relationships that, um, and attitudes that we have. And that's where liberation occurs. Essentially, well, is the workshop. And uh, the Buddha seemed to this Buddha seemed to think this was one of the best places, the best workshops to work within, because human life spans long enough to get the message. Hey, something wrong here. <laughs> it's long enough to get, and also long enough for you to do the work. You know, I don't think like a gnat that lives for a day might recognise it's unsatisfactory, but not be able to cultivate the skills to get out of it. We've got plenty of time to do that, a good amount of time. But we haven't got enough time to fool around, because we all know we could die tomorrow. So you've got a sense there's an edge, but, you know, you've got some time. And you've got the, you know, you're in a workshop, this happened, you're given, you, you've got enough time to read the message, the writing on the wall. This ship is going down, get it? <laughs> so, you know, and it's not going anywhere that's that useful. Now, you see, the other realms that the Buddha talks about, like the um, Deva realms, which are heavenly realms, where it's so nice, you don't want to get liberated because things are being really pleasant. You're having a good time. Who wants to get liberated? It's really nice here. Going for a million years or something, living in bliss. You know, writing's not very clear on the wall, so you don't bother. And then, you know, the, the, the worlds where the mind isn't strong enough to discern the senses. So the animal realm is considered less fortunate because the sensory realm is there, but the mind, the, mind, the mental realm is not strong enough to really read and navigate and get the message of it. So they're bound up in the sense realm and the impulses that, it, uh, that uh, our reactions generate around it. Let's get on. I've been in or around abusive relationships as long as I can remember. My father was physically abusive, my mother emotionally abusive. All my intimate relationships have been abusive. My last relationship ended eight months ago and I've been experiencing uncontrollable internal rage since then. I'm sorry to hear that. My question is, what hope do I have of ever being free of this deep sankara when the trauma is so ingrained in my system? So just for, you know, for reference, the sankara means a kind of a, uh, like a program, like it means your mind runs on a certain track. You see what it means? So sankaras are like uh, formative tracks. So you know, we might have a habit or a behaviour, and we just chug along in that particular way, uh, and that 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 or everything that does that is called a sankara. It constructs a track for our mind to run down. You know? And some of this, the worst ones are the ones that we do. So although this is sounds horrific, you know, to have been abused physically, father, mother, and so forth. I don't like to sound truly about this, but it's better than if you did that to others <laughs> in terms of the teaching you know, it's better that somebody abuse me than I abuse other people it does, it's not a very you know, easy thing to say but there's, it's much worse if you do the actions than if somebody does it to you yeah. because then you've, got, you've really intended and picked up and driven that sankara along yeah and so that, that's more difficult. But even that, we have the case of this mass murderer, Angulimala, who killed 999 people, who clearly had a, he had a bit of a track there. <laughs> and, you know, not just pickpocket, but uh, seriously bad karma. But he, he's, he uh, Buddha met him and so forth, and he became Narahan. So... He's always my guiding star. I never killed anybody. So really, you know, the short story is it depends on work, it depends on food, and it depends on rest, like everything else. Uh, within his inherited sankharas, this is not the sankara of things we've done, but the pattern is established by having things done to us. Um, 
you, you know, this is um, this is extremely problematic because you see, when one's in that track of, of being abused, then the mind doesn't know what it's like. It knows the idea of not being abused, but it doesn't know. It's not familiar with the experience of non-abuse. So it easily slides into that track where it gets angry, frightened, or whatever else occurs in that. You know? and it's, it's insecure, unsafe, can't trust. And that's really, really uh, difficult to move out of. So our work you know, is to, uh, well, feel it, unfortunately, and to really trace through the stories. Clearly this person does have stories they could probably remember and talk about, but the point is to, to just filter through the story to the, the very quality of abused felt meaning of that and what that feels like clearly vulnerable uh, insecure uh, outraged uh, and all these these emotions that occur very powerful now how does that feel in the body so to to clear it the two things are necessary one is to have the resources to not just go into that track and keep digging it, not to go into that sankara and keep I'm like this or whatever it is, not to just keep going into it so that all your energy just goes into to deepening that impression. So there's got to be a lot of mindfulness and restraint and also the, to direct the mind to holding the pain. You know, we could most of us, I'm sure, would just say, well, let's go into completely get out of the territory altogether I don't want to even be there yeah? um, maybe that's sometimes the way it has to be you know, it's difficult to be with this very hot raw stuff but uh, everyone's paces oneself we always got to, eventually we've got to get back to the scene of the crime where it's carved on the heart you know, we, can know that we cannot go into the past and recreate that but we can go to the track in the heart. And how is that? Now, can I sense that without putting more energy into it? This takes a lot of mindfulness and uh, uh, focus. And the way we go into it, one way we can go into it is sensing where it is in the body because the nature of feeling, emotion, in the mind is it, it floods you don't feel a little bit angry in one corner of your mind <laughs> the whole thing blows up right otherwise it's, you know you can't say well I'm sort of angry but at the same time quite peaceful and, you know, and happy <laughs> a little bit over there is angry but it's just a woo so the whole the motion floods the mind so it's very difficult to get perspective on it but in the in terms of the body you can have quite angry bits of your body and bits of your body that are not angry. <laughs> you know, like your spine isn't angry. Uh, or back of your head isn't angry. You may feel a lot in the chest or in the abdomen or running up your face or something like that. So, so from the places that aren't so you know, infected, you kind of put your attention there, see if you can Stand there, if you like, and witness the pulse of feeling. And the more you can create, like, channels, you know, tracts or pathways from the intense feeling to the neutral, you know, from the intensities of the, of the felt area to the more neutral or even positive places, you know, feet feel pretty good, keeping that, those pathways open, it's possible for the, the compressed energy of rage, the fiery compressed energy of rage, to find a place where it can release. Now in terms of how this goes, for a start, we cannot get rid of the past. That's impossible. We're not expected to forget everything. 
we're not expecting to have wonderful, you know, start with having a, a good emotion. You start with touching the energy of it. And could that energy find a place where it could just abate? And it's not through saying, well, you shouldn't be so angry after all. Bygones are bygones, we all make mistakes. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's just, it's, it's almost deal with it as a, as a, a f- this, what I call the fine material realm. Yeah, so it's like a, almost like a uh, like a physical, semi-physical substance, like electricity. And you're running it down, and let it just let it run, and try to avoid any uh, messing with it or any emotional judgment of it, or even adding to the emotional intensity of it. Yeah. So the energy can then possibly at least not keep pumping itself up. If it doesn't pump rage, if it doesn't pump itself up, it changes. You know, these powerful emotions need to keep escalating in order to keep going. If they don't escalate, you can't have a steady, peaceful, static rage. It's got to keep billowing and blowing up. So if it doesn't do that, then it changes into something else. It may change into sadness, for example. It may change into despair, hopelessness, something like that. Which is not great news, clearly. But the idea is that whatever the emotions are doing, that's the way they change, that's the way they flow. And what you in a sense, is to try to follow, let the energy run through and... and so in this process of the energy being held and run through, things can shift. Yeah. And you do that repeatedly, it gets so that clearly one can remember these terrible events, but suddenly they don't quite light the same fire. Because the energy has been received, met, held, that and the story begins to lose its impact that's work quite a lot of work really. I need food food essentially is uh, food of these spiritual qualities such as mindfulness and self-respect and, uh, and uh, patience and uh, so on and also the food of Kalyanamita people you can trust People who listen, people who feel this person will not abuse me. This is food also, because it does throughout the line that I can experience myself differently when I'm with these five people. I don't feel that same sense of, you know, messed up or I'm seen with, I can experience myself with some dignity. So you rebuild, you know, you feed with the good stuff. And resting is a rare thing for any of us, really. Real rest. It's those moments when, you know, the energy has been heard, received, paused, and you try to avoid picking it up again. Try to avoid picking it up again. Clearly here you have a very strong piece of um, history Uh, and any of our history mottled, horrible, whatever you don't want to make that into a a definition of yourself It's, it's happened, it's circumstances it's not a person and that's not an intellectual experience it's an emotional realignment I can stand apart from the history. I can stand back from the circumstances. Because they are circumstances, they're not myself. Skillful way to address an acquaintance who in a social setting with other friends present makes shockingly 
racist remark, fully expecting that I'm in agreement. In other words, is it possible to be compassionate when responding to someone who has hateful, wrong ideas? Well, it takes work. (laughs) Because the first thing is how these things touch your own mind, your own heart. And they touch you in a sense of aversion, disgust. And then if it's a, so that's the first impression that's there, that, you know, a sense of disgust or aversion too. There's also something else in there that somehow there's a sense of I'm being asked to collude in this by this is just us chatting, we're, we're good friends, you know, like make a few funny remarks or something. So there's another sense there, one of being duped or, or you know, encouraged to collude in something you feel, you know, you don't feel a part of, you feel extremely averse to. And your th- third sense is this supposed to be a group of friends. <laughs> You know, so we're forming a bond around distasteful um, uh, ethics. So there's several things to to, uh, acknowledge going on. But certainly if one is is really shaken, then then it's difficult to make any kind of uh, clear clear, um, um, response. But in that state, probably because states say, well, sorry, I'm really... This it doesn't go down with me at all. This doesn't work for me. I'm really not with that. I find that really diff- I find that really offensive. Just to, you know, it's as cool as you can, but you know, say it quite clearly, distinctly. I'm not with that. I find that really offensive. Yeah. So that's just saying, I find not what you are, but I find that really offensive. I'm not with that. I don't. I don't support that. That could be probably said with a measure of calm. <laughs> anyway, and, and you know, that's, that's a good start. And if that's said in, in the group particularly, then in a way the sense of the collusion sense is, is broken. We're not colluding. The sense of this is just jolly fun making. No, no, that's, that's broken. <laughs> broken that one. And therefore you're also really contributing to uprooting a context which can support this kind of dialogue, this kind of way of behaviour, and saying no, no, I'm, you know, you, you're cutting, cutting the connections that would support that. And this is very important to do. Yeah. Now, whether we're compassionate or not, that comes perhaps a bit later, <laughs> yeah. because the, <laughs> you know, the first thing is the, the moral, to make the moral stand. Yeah. First of all, yeah. and then. Because that's you're making a moral stand. That's the first thing. And if one can be, you know, I don't think one should say, "Well, you know, you." That that's the, that's the that's the response. Now, in a way, it can be compassionate because. Uh, you know, if people do continue to act in unskillful ways, then then they will be for their own harm. Yeah. So, in a way, by we call it the skill of admonishment. And the Buddha, as I said, as I alluded to in talking about relationship, said, you know, very why we have relationship is so that we can receive correction for our misdeeds. And so he said, you know. This, 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 I regard this as uh, food, you know, uh, a resource. And when you admonish someone, you do so with a sense of, you know, the person's not 100% evil, you know, it's stupid, got some stupid, so you try to speak to something, say, look, you know, Try to imagine or remember the signs that there are some good in this person and address that. Do you realize this, what this kind of stuff does, what you're talking, what you're saying? You know, you're not just going to do other people harm, you're really going to put yourself in a bad state because you're carrying views that are, are corrupting and not conducive to 
loving kindness and so forth. You know, however you express that, but um, that, that's a compassionate gesture. To pull people out of the fire that they're happily building for themselves is considered compassionate. So uh, the Buddha said, admonishment we can consider to be an invaluable resource for the for this spiritual practice. He says if and the worst thing he says, you know, he says, well, sometimes I admonish people kindly, sometimes I admonish them a bit severely, and sometimes I kill them. <laughs> he says, how do you kill them? I kill them by not admonishing them. <laughs> because we call this death in the spiritual life. If nobody considers you worth admonishing, then you're doomed. <laughs> That's the way he looked at it. So, you know, uh, and then, so, you know, you check, make your stand, you know, and then suitable time, you know, dress what you feel you need to be addressed with a sense of, you know, this is not just because I'm annoyed, it's because this is for your welfare. I am annoyed. <laughs> Incidentally. <laughs> you know, because any 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 of this stuff is the stuff that rots rots human society. Any, any of this um you know, bad mouthing people on any level for anything. It's the thing that rots, destroys something that could be potentially enormously resourceful, and it sets up antipathy, um, abuse, and so forth. So we should really recognise it for what it is, and uh, be clear about making our moral statement. Okay, so let's. Um, pause there for today